It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Why had those others hauled? They were old and experienced boatsmen. One man in the quay at Boffin warned him, sharpen your knife, be ready for trouble, cut away your nets, your crew is too young. Were they going home? On Friday the 28th of October, 1927, four boats rowed out from Rossadilisk and five from Inish Boffin to catch mackerel and herring in Cleggan Bay off the Connemara coast. By the following morning, 25 fishermen from the area had drowned, leaving families heartbroken and destitute in a hurricane that claimed 45 lives along the western seaboard. Not so much a night to remember, rather a night never to be forgotten. They left home about 5 o'clock in the evening to get their boats ready for the sea. So they got out there and said, it's between half past five and six o'clock, and it was very calm, but we're making our mystery in. But, you know, not bad. Some of the boats had the, the fishing ground. And uh, this time arose all suddenly. And the blue says, oh, 70 or 80 miles an hour, I guess. Which was on, but maybe both an hour and on ahead. Uh, some of them would have had their, their nets half out. Others would have been just um, maybe in the middle of pulling other nets. So um, some of them would have cut their nets and others were trying to hold on to them for anchors on that particular night. They had no warning. Now, Mancon Dr. Holbrook in, in Cleggan Farm, he had uh, a radio, so he had actually got the weather forecast. So when he had heard how bad it was going to be, he sent one of his um, farm labourers out called Tommy Mullen on a white horse to go to Rostilis and to warn them not to go out fishing. But at, at that stage, it was too late. They had already gone out. Well, just about the time the sun would be set and the sun shone for a few minutes, my father was in bed because he was in Cleggan out the night before on night fishing. And... He was in Cleggan until about two that day, then selling the fish. He got his supper anyway, and if 10 or 15 minutes, another fella called to the door, and he says, Mark, he says, what do you think of it? So he gave a look around him, he said, I don't think much of it, he says. But he said, it's this way, he said, we might make a shot or so. So at that day, he turned in, took his oilskins, stuck them under his arm, and just piping. That was that, he went, they went, the two of them. They believed that you catch more herring at night, so they were at night. And it's said, like, the tradition in the area, which my father used in his book Rain and the Wind, was that they went fishing the previous night, and they had this extraordinary experience where they saw a ghost boat following them, you know? What happened was they were rowing along, and one, one particular boat, load of fellas, got ahead of the main group, and they looked behind them, and there was this ghost boat, following them, you know. So they tried everything to get rid of this ghost boat or to call out, say, is that you, Johnny, or is that you, Patsy? Or They got no answer. So eventually, like as my father has written in his book, they blessed the boat. But the boat followed them for about a mile. So there was this warning given 
Now, like, my father makes a story of it, but this was a, there was a warning given that there was going to be a storm. But they still went out the following night in these rowboats with just oars and a hurricane struck and it hit them full blast on. But the other element in it was the, the fact that, like, some of them who cut the nets were saved. Those who didn't weren't, you know. And there's the most incredible description given by some of the survivors where they looked and moonlight suddenly appeared and they saw a boat, you know, with all the men being turned right up by the waves. The waves were absolutely gigantic and turned right over and they could see the men falling into sea. Like one of the survivors told me that, you know, they, they saw things like that. You know, it's like the men, I've met men, say, who fought in World War One. They nearly can't talk about the experience, you know. And that's with the men of Tleggan, that the experience of going through this and of seeing men they knew, friends of theirs, drown in front of them, just knock them out. And my mother was making bread, you know, mixing, as we call it. And all of a sudden we heard the bang. So she shoved the dish from another to the floor and... She made a remark, which you never, I never heard her making her that remark before, and often was bad nights out, you know, he was often bad nights out. She threw the dish from her and she said, she said, if the mercy God, she said, Daddy, never come in. A storm began to march, the shrill wind piping and thunder exploding as lightning flaked in willow cascades and bayonets of hail flashed over craters and hillocks of water. All the boats were trapped. None had reached the pier. It got very dark out there. Um, it was just like a whirlwind. I suppose, in a sense, it may, it may have been uh, like a type of hurricane. Most of them got lost, actually, within a mile of their own farms, within a mile, because they had small boats called curracks, and they would not have been able to venture out far. Now, by chance, my grandfather was swept ashore by a freak wave. Another man, which a lot of people would be probably familiar with through the poem of Richard Murphy, was Pat Cannon, who had come from Inishbuffin. He had struggled all through the night with his young crew and he had arrived into Cleggan, I think it was four o'clock in the morning, with, um, blinded by the sea and his hands four times the size that they were trying to keep his crew together with, with letting in and out nets and keeping the boat head in the wind. The minute the storm came on him, he, he, he cut his nets. He knew he had to get, get out of the area he was in and, and uh, he kind of ran ahead of the storm and, and kept the kept the boat up up our head up in the wind and he made for his boat his corrock that was anchored in, in residualis but when he got there she was sunk they thought all was lost in but uh, they kind of crash landed really on that strand down there uh, Salerno his brother was lost and his brother-in-law and about five of his first cousins so it had to be very severe because it came from a straight line all the way, all the way north, from from Lacken right across Inishki, right across Teresagilis, basically in a straight line as, as you look down across Ackle there. It had to be very, very severe because they were shrewd fishermen. They, you know, they, they were no fools. They, they were caught out in it. Fishermen, if you talk to fishermen, you know, men who have fished all their lives on the sea, and particularly these men in the west coast of Ireland who were living in marginally and doing herring fishing and things like that, they they didn't they didn't ever learn to swim. That's one of the things because they like they reckoned if the boat went down, they were better to drown and not be worrying about swimming. 
you know. So an awful lot of fishermen, the older fishermen, never learned to swim, which sounds ludicrous, you know. But I mean, what happened was when this hurricane struck them, they were gone, you know. Now the men that survived, they, like they were blinded, the man I met was totally blinded by the salt. You know, the salt blown into his eyes actually blinded him. He never saw again. The other men, like, had, you know, had terrible um, um, wounds on their backs from the waves battering their backs. The man who was at the bow with the boat, like, was getting battered as they rowed for shore. Then sickness surged, and against their will they were gripped with terror. He told them to bail. When they lost the bailer, they bailed with their boots. Then they cast overboard their costly nets and a thousand mackerel. Well, it had it had about seven or eight foot lifted off the sea, you know, with the foam. When it hits, we were the first boat it hit. We were the nearest to the, the gale. And we, like, we, our nets broke away and we, we worked on our, on our anchor, you know, we dropped our anchor. And we worked on the anchor and, and the mooring. We had no nets. Go on, oh, Pat, you, you, you bought your nets to Fahey, would you? They brought nets, mooring, boat and all, all the way into the motor and let it fly. We held on to our nets right along. And we had the four over there, didn't allow it, allow it, allow it in it, all the time. And what were you doing during the storm? You know, what were you rowing? Or? We, we were, we were, we were rowing, we were, taking the weight off the boat. T- you know? taking, the, taking the weight off the boat and off the nets for that, for that break. Yeah. Did you see any of the other boats? We heard the boat. We were on the drowning boats. It would be yeah. about fifty yards east to us. We, we knew she was drowning too, you know, but we couldn't do no good to her. Like, what did you see exactly? We heard their, their you know, their roars. Because when the, when the wave would wash over, we wouldn't hear nothing. And when she'd come up again, we'd hear them all together. That was on her about three or four minutes. And it mightn't be that at all. We were saying to be that much. Anyway, all of a sudden, everything died down. We knew there was a boat lost. We didn't know who she was until the next day. That, that was Pat Poor's boat. Yeah. Some of the buffing boats, at least one of the buffing boats, was in Letter Frack. And... Um, you know, they, they knew Clunan's boat was gone right away because he was on uh, found on Cleggan Beach. The rest of them, they were hoping, hoping, I suppose, for a couple of days afterwards, as you do in a tragedy, that someone ended end up on an island or, or washed ashore somewhere, but uh, that was not to be the case. There was eight found, and nine were never found uh, in, here in Resedisk. Um God knows where they are, but uh, they're somewhere out there, I suppose, in the bay. You know, we were, we we drifted away from there, from from there, and we went out about a hundred yards out of the line head. I said, "Now this, there's another hurricane coming by." They said, "And there's some sort of night." I said, "I should be behind me. I should find whatever it is." They all looked up now and they listened, and they had the noise. What was it? But a boat. It was upset her mouth and she was a lot for it. That's the boat now that Martin attacking boat. It's only about two miles across the from current, where uh, Tool was drowned. The current no. took it out and straight, straight from that, straight hang clicking head. And the brother clicking head, that's where all the clicking it was, one lump. And then the other happened to come forward them. And then they didn't they, they, they get in hold in them. Our net broke. Yeah. And we, we had to go to Bannonfield then. My grandfather was the editor of the Connacht Tribune. So he was 
rung up on the night the disaster happened and he went out there and he was the first journalist there and he reported on it and wrote the story of the Leggan disaster and this story, newspaper story spread all over the world because it was published all over the world my father then as a young lad of 17 years old went out there and visited the place and was you know, really taken over by the way people were dominated by this terrible thing that happened I mean, he was probably there in the early 30, you know, in the early 30s, so it was six or seven years after. And he kept this in his mind. There was one extraordinary thing that happened that hadn't ever been reported, and I wasn't able to do it because there was a survivor who lived um, north of Cleggan, and he his story was an extraordinary one, which was never told, even in any of the newspaper reports or anything. What had happened to him was he he managed to get the boat into the shore, he then climbed a cliff of a hundred foot or something, went and got help and came back and got people to come up and bring these people up, you know. So when we went there with the television, I went and I wanted to get him and the priest was bringing me to his house. And he came stamping out of the house past us, you see. And the priest followed him and he says, what's wrong? He says, when that journalist came here in 1928, he didn't talk to me. I'm not going to talk to this fella now in 1972. <laughs> so the, the, like the... So they lived with this tragedy, you know, and it, it hovered over the place, you know. One of the crew said he heard his brother shouting for help two oars away, yet when he hollered, there was no reply. In a lightning flash, a white hand rose and rested on the gunwale, then slowly sank. I often heard him talking of a dream he had a couple of weeks before the disaster that he... There was a men, bad men, raiding the village and they were raiding houses and stealing what little they had and, and uh, he woke up as they were coming into his house and, and he started woke up roaring that they weren't going to take Anton off him you know, that's I remember that and talking about that story it was some kind of a warning you know, that, that maybe he'd be saved while the rest were lost or something in that line, you know but I think what, what saved him was that he, he cut in time uh, he always maintained that the the, the rest of the fishermen tried to uh, hold on to the last minute of their nets because they were valuable. They were worth, I think, about four pounds at that time, every net. So there'd be five nets on board, so that'd be 20 quid, a lot of money in, in uh, 1927. If their nets were gone, they couldn't fish because they had no other no other way of replacing them. When you, when you know Connemara people and Arden Island people and everything... Um, they're only a step away from paganism is what I always think like I always think the Tuatha Danann are the antecedents of the Arden Islanders you know they have a pagan feel about them you know so they watch things like you know bees on the bushes and you know the leaves turning brown and they look they looked at all those things before they went to sea each night you know and this ghost ship the ghost boat that they had seen was a significant sign perhaps to get some of them not to go but then again, they were thinking, like, the herring are running. We caught them last night. We have to go. If they were on the water at six o'clock, um, they would have started. They would say the rosary. Um, if if they were setting their nets, they would set them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. They would have never have gone out without holy water, which would be kept in the stern of the boat. One of my grandfather's traditions at that time, would have, he would have only ever made 33 pots. And that was for each year of orders on the earth. Um, an old tradition then was also if they met a lady with red hair, they felt that was a bad omen. They were not going to, there was no point in going out that day. They would have all had uh, scafflers 
um, mainly uh, to be honest all the all their traditions seems to be seem to have been around religion and I'm sure like that they there was loads of uh, people with red hair and I'm sure they met them and they still went out fishing they were shrewd enough in their own way too with the weather you know they had other ways of, of, of uh, knowing the weather you know but they didn't expect anything like what they got they'd look to the clouds and they, 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 the seagulls kind of thing and it, sometimes it'd be on land before a storm you'd often see them you know grazing on the land it, it used to be a sign you'd hear them saying that there was a storm on the way down the valleys of this lull like a black cow in search of her calf an upturned hull wallowed towards them her stem had parted all hands must have been lost. She lunged to his side and almost staved him. Were the men inside? We knew there were people waiting because we saw lanterns and lights along the shore, you know it. Oh, yes, and the car... But then everything was... All hopes were given up when we landed. We landed and nobody felt it at all. About two o'clock in the morning. Never felt it. We walked down here to the village. The people had given up, they'd oh, gone they to bed. Had. And I tell the truth, I had, I had my brother that was fishing with Pat. Oh, he was, John Doctor. He's living yet too, he's down in the mental home though. I believe he was well out to be. He's down in the home. And you home. thought he was last like? Oh, I was sure of it until about the midday the next day they came from, from Letterfrack. And did you walk into your own house or where did you go? Well, I, the first house I met on the way down there, it was his boat we had, you know, Michael Cunyan, he wasn't fishing at all. Yeah. That night he didn't go out, his wife wasn't feeling good and and he we walked down right straight down and he we walked in and he wouldn't believe anyone born that were living people. Yeah. <laughs> they were all sure you were drunk. Oh they were all right. Tell the truth it was a wicked night. So it must be some of them had to make the show but they didn't make it up for me. But uh there's one body they lost, which we lost on the Litskis. The bodies was never found. The boat was found on right was the shore. About nine o'clock that night. He had respect for the sea. He gave away a share of his catch at the Cleggan market. No one who asked for a feed of fish was refused. Years and years ago, I went on holidays to the Iron Islands and um, I asked this island man, I said, like, you know, why is it that everybody votes for Fianna Fáil in the Iron Islands? Because, like, there nearly wasn't a vote other than Fianna Fáil in the three Iron Islands. I said, Mr. Dave gave us the dole. See, previous to De Valera coming to power, there was no dole. So these people lived on this marginal land. They maybe had a cow, a pig and chickens, and they fished for herring. Now, what used to happen then was they'd bring the herring in, and the herring then would be brought to Clifton and into Galway, and they might get, they might get a pound a barrel for a barrel of herring, you know. So they were living on incredible poverty. It was incredible poverty. So that's why it made such an impact to lose so many men, able-bodied men, you know. One room cottage, um, there would, there may have been windows broken on it, um, the thatch may have been leaking. The only way of heating at that time would have been an open fire. And uh, basically sometimes, um, I suppose they would have had some livestock in. I suppose the only way they, they were able to survive was through the fishing because when they went out fishing, on top of bringing in their catches and trying to sell them, they, they would have also kept stocks for their families as well to survive on over the winter time. They had a bartering system in in that in every village I suppose in Ireland at the time where one family helped another family at different times and seasons in the line of if it was saving turf, saving hay, 
maybe doing work during the wintertime on mending nets and pots and boats. That's the way things were in them times. They were, they were, they were hardy men. They had to be to survive. They had big families, big families to support. It was, it was ten of us, and we were not alone. I mean, they had to, they had to fish. They had to fish or starve. Uh, of my family, the, the whole immediate family, the whole family immigrated by myself, and I went for a short while, and I didn't like, didn't like England really, and uh, I came back. But um, my father's brothers and sisters, after that, they all went to America, and they never came home. Some of the families, my own included, now that we got, were shifted up to this village, which is Salerno, from Resigilisk, and. Uh, the land we had in Resigilisk was given to another uh, Feeney family. And uh, they'd they done that type of work. So I suppose they tried their best. You can st- still see the ruins of several houses down there today. You know, there's just the, the walls left now, the stone walls and all the road. It, it was a ghost town, really. I, I remember being in that village as a child. There was, there was nobody in it. You know, there's, I think, two families I remember being in it when I was growing up. and. In my father's time, there was 25 houses there. So from 25 to 2 was a big, big drop. The very most that have would be, uh, you know, sort of 10 acres of land. So they would have a cow on it, uh, two, two cows maybe. They would have a cow for milk and a cow for, you know, for calving so that they could sell the cow. They would have, there wasn't that many sheep in the Cleggan area, but they would have had their own vegetables. They would have had a pig as well and chickens. They would be, so they were very self-reliant. They would have had a, a part of the bog, commonage of the bog. So they cut their own turf. They made their own bread. Like with the fish, they cooked their fish. They would have had pig meat, which they salted. So that was the way they, they were totally self-sufficient. You know, and the other thing they had, of course, was the shop in Cleggan would have had an account, you know. So at the end of the six weeks, or so when the the fish were sold they would pay the account the only education that all of them went to was the the bunskull you know they finished at 12 13 14 because they had to they had to begin they were working on the farm anyway and so they definitely they, they just did the you know the bare minimum of education there was no like secondary schools in connemara virtually do you know i mean the there might have been one at clifton now but i mean the average like in Uktarard, when I was in Uktarard in the 50s, there was no secondary school in Uktarard. There is now. But so, therefore, for people to go to secondary school, the main way they did it was, in fact, one of the sons went to a diocesan college, went to board in a diocesan college, so he was going to become a priest. And many of them didn't, you know, because they were getting a secondary education. But secondary education just wasn't. They, at 14, you finished. You helped with your family, and usually you took the boat. The funeral boats brought over the bodies found, but most were carried away on the great ebb tide. From the village of Rossadilisk, they lost 16, and from Boffin, nine. One man, above all, was blind. Yeah, we got her brother all right, on the beach, yeah. Thank him over the water, and my other brother seen it. He knew his hand was up, and the way went off, his hand was up. He had his eyes seen down him. He hadn't crashed the road anymore. So he said to my brother, he said, I'm going to bring him in. And the lad said, no, and I'm going out there, Tom, because it's too deep. So he wouldn't give, he wouldn't give in. So we'll make a chain, he said, every man catch one another. He said, their hands, and you know, my God, he said, you might catch your brother's hand. 
for the summer, don't they, for them ashore? Now, we went oh, along yeah. in the morning, of course, I was young, we said another lad, and even more, we went over as far as the cottages where the boats came ashore. Yeah. We seen the boats there, and there, and it's piled up on the strand, and fishing them. And I don't remember, that was the first dead man I ever seen, a jolly clown, most of this. He was later on a common cart now, then a kind shade in his eyes, and said he was taken on the strand, you know. They just put him on a common cart and yeah. wheeled him back. It continued for three or four days. And um, there's this wonderful description um, given by people of, you know, um, with storm lanterns, they walk these beaches because although in the first um, day or so after they did find some of the bodies, it took a week nearly for them to find others. So the entire community spent every night searching with these storm lanterns, these paraffin lamps walking along the place, you know. So the, the, this is why the tragedy stays in the mind of people so long because it was a week of tragedy. And then the most extraordinary thing in Cleggan is the, as you'll see, the church in Cleggan looks out on Omi Island and the, the, the graveyard is on Omi Island. So what they do they brought these bodies in the coffins, they put them in the parish hall beside the church. Then when they when they had the funeral service over, they carried them on their shoulders, you know, down from the church to Omi Island, across the strand into the graveyard. So I mean the the visual pictures that that creates just you know, just reinforce the tragedy, you know, on people I think. In a common grave that was dug in the sand dunes, close to high water mark, but leagues from low springs, they laid side by side the pine wood coffins, luring them on ropes, then shoveled the fine sand, which whisperingly slid round their recent companions. And sometimes the shovels met with a knelling clang, while in shifts they worked till the mound was raised. I, I remember going fishing with him on a few occasions, but not, not, not too many. He was a tough old man, you know. He was tough, but easy going. Easy going, you know. He wasn't a troublesome man by any means. Older men in the village used to call to visit him and talk to him about fishing and about, you know, what was going on and how the fishing was and that type of thing. And I used to hear them here in the house. I had to go on. He had to, he had to rear us. And, and, uh, make a living from the sea, you know, he had to continue. The stress couldn't come into it. He fished actually till, till, he, um, till he got lined to cataracts and um, he was too late when he went to do something about them, he was too old. croak of a herring gull tolled across the sky. An oyster catcher squealed. Shoals broke on the bay. The flood tide rose and covered the deserted strand. <laughs> 